My guest today has been described as a manager that has no problem going to bat for the teams internally and as a manager who's excellent at accessing an account or opportunity from the outside and adding strategic value. In short, she has a great balance of strategic planning and vision. Working with Gronya is not only an enriching experience, but also a lot of fun. Gronya Maycook, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for the very kind words. I must remember to pay those lovely people who <laughs> said those things about me. I could probably add a few more in described as a pain in the proverbial. Yeah, I, I came up, what came up a few times uh, was balance and fun. Good. And I, and I have to say one of the things I did I did a, a segue into psychology early in my education because I was curious about what made people tick. And one of the things that I didn't realize while studying that was a key part of team engagement and personal engagement was that sense of humor. And I don't know if it's something particularly Irish, particularly global or specific in terms of that love of having fun when you're working 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you may as well do something that makes you laugh, makes your team laugh, makes people feel that they can do the hard things while having a sense of, I'm really enjoying this. It might be hard, it might be challenging, and humour is a big thing, so it was lovely to hear what other people recognise. So, yeah, thank you for that intro. No trouble. Uh, tell me a little bit, Gronje, you, you, your accent um, sounds like a Dublin accent-ish. It is. Is yep. it? Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what that was like. Yeah, so my mum is from the prettiest village in Ireland, Adair, and my dad, Bluebell and Crumlin, and I grew up in Ballyfermot, a suburb of Dublin. I am the youngest of six kids, very traditional upbringing. I was the youngest of six kids, so there's five girls and a boy, my poor brother. Um, <laughs> it was... Traditional in the sense that mum was at home, we came home from school, we were forced to do our homework, get everything done. And I think when I look back on that, it instilled a sense of consistency and get the hard stuff done and then go play. We spent summers in the countryside, so yeah. in a chair, uh, just having fun in the fields with the animals, with picking fruit that would be made into jam and tarts, things that... I remember one of the earliest memories. Oh my God, I'm going to make Dubliners sound awful in this one. But I remember one of the earliest memories of somebody telling me about dry cattle and milk and the creamery and go out and get the milk. And I'm thinking, okay, I'll go to the shops, no problem. Uh, no, they actually meant go out and get the milk from the cow or go and collect the urns of milk from the creamery because at the time Adair wasn't very built up it still had the local creamery, which is now much more modern. It still had a lot of things that in Dublin you're looking going, no, sorry, we'll just go to the local <laughs> shop and pick everything up. So, yeah, a mixed, a balanced kind of childhood of city and country, but loved it. Yeah, I'm curious to know is, because that, that seems quite a mixture because Adair, for people who don't know it, is quite a rural little town. Um it's a, it's a type of place people pass through on their way to Kerry, right? It's, uh, my mum's family house is the second last cottage 
before you hit the Kerry Road. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, a be- it's a beautiful little spot, but yeah, very, very rural. And it's interesting to get that when you talk about the the, the split between the, the, the city kid and their understanding that milk comes from a shop. Absolutely. And the rural kid goes, no, no, that's not how it is. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, um, talk to me then a little bit about how you feel um, that might have influenced who you are today. You, you mentioned the fact that with the traditional background, one of six kids, you came home, there was kind of get the work done, then play. And that's yeah. important. Yeah. Talk to me more about the, those other kind of experiences around the country living, city living, and, and how that juxtaposition might find its way into who you are. I think one of the biggest things about spending time in the country, having grown up in a city suburb, was from a very early age, there was something different. There was something outside of my immediate world Mm. that the world is bigger. Mm. So my world is bigger, the world is bigger, the type of people, the type of experiences are bigger. And and that hugely influenced me. I didn't realise it at the time. I just wanted to go to the countryside because... Your parents didn't know what you were doing. You had your friends from the summer as well as your friends from through the years. So it was an adventure at the time. But when I look back on it, that sense of the world being bigger than who you are or where you are, those experiences of other people, whether it was where milk comes from, where you go to school, what you do after school, the convenience versus hardship of certain things it kind of drove me as well so I spent a lot of time in my 20s and 30s abroad so I studied languages that whole inspiration which I didn't realize was an inspiration at the time of wanting to get to know other cultures other people other cities other countries other senses of how people live was a big thing that's stayed throughout my life so I studied and lived in a number of countries so from doing Erasmus abroad to taking a year off so I lived in Spain I lived in Switzerland I lived in China Argentina the States that cultural Switzerland the cultural connection of wow how do these people think who are these people how do they see the world Mm. I think was a curiosity that came from being exposed very early on to something beyond my suburb, beyond my city, beyond my mm. immediate life experience. And and I've brought that with me. I love it. I love it. It's the industry I got into as well, in terms of multiculturalism, in terms of globalization. And how is that shape? If I was to work in your business and experience you as a leader, how do you think that is different than it would have been had you not had those experiences. How would I know? What would I observe? I think an innate curiosity to your view of the world from what shaped you is what came from it. It's, I'm very curious whether it's members of my team, whether it's leaders in our organization, whether it's customers and where they came from. The first thought in my head is not this is how you do things. It's more, tell me how you think. Tell me what this looks like to you. Tell me 
how you're viewing the situation. Tell me what your thought is on how we can solve a situation. So I think that innate curiosity and belief that my view is not the only view, that other people's views brought together to solve a problem will give you a more colourful, a more efficient, a broader sense of how you can do things, if that makes mm. sense. You know, it perfectly does. And it, it, it highlights the, in terms of the, the type of curiosity you're talking about, how powerful it is, because you can be curious in a way that you says, why won't they just do it the way I've told them to do it? <laughs> That's not going to work. No, no, it isn't. But it's so. But that would fit the curiosity. I, I, I don't understand. But yours is different. It's, it's trying. It's, it's first of all an understanding that people see the world differently, and that their thought process and their belief systems are a function of years and years and years of their life experiences. And it's not something you can just say, well, look, do it this way or, or, or don't think that way, think this way. It is and, and, and really it's, it's leveraging the power of that rather than trying to bend it and shape it to fit yeah. your worldview. And I think that's quite powerful. And it's funny, the, the dichotomy, the, the juxtaposition of that for me in sales management is I'm very process driven. So I have, I'm very process driven in terms of there are processes that enable scale. There are processes that enable personal sales achievement. There are processes that enable team success. There are scalable processes that provide predictability to an organization that are, that's growing at an accelerated rate. So I'm, it's funny, actually, I have the two sides of that people curiosity and how do you get the best out of their experiences brought to the table that them together will be better than what I think. Mm. But I'm also equally this, this framework, this process, this reporting, this parameters will give us all a common language within which to bring those experiences. So it's funny. I've, I've I'm unusual. I remember being mm. described early in my sales career as being very people centric. Mm. and very customer centric and as i moved from individual contributor into sales management and leadership in that space it was funny some of the reactions i got going wow you are more detailed than we ever would have imagined from your people side in terms of sales processes you talk about pipeline to the nth degree in terms of numbers, you evaluate things. So it's funny. It's funny. Mm. I have the two kind of sides, mm. which makes it interesting for me at I'm, least. I guess that's where some of the comments on the balance comes from. Yeah. Interesting. When you were younger, who would have influenced you the most? It's funny. I remember some conversations going, oh, who's your favorite celebrity or who's the, the leader that influenced you most? And I never had those famous people that I would have been drawn to in terms of influence or what they did. It was day-to-day -day people that overcame either adversity or had a belief that was coupled with a bravery to do things. I grew up in a working class suburb. I grew up in a family where I was the first person in my immediate family 
to go to university, to go on to third level and executive education. And I think the influences that I had were the day-to-day people who either worked hard or had a family in tough times or built something amazing and fun and empathetic and gave people good experiences, whether that was family, whether that was neighbours, whether that was people I worked with. So, for example, in, in my early career, I worked with Italians, Irish people and learning their life stories and what they had to overcome, despite what you see every day, getting to know them in terms of they had a tragedy in the family and they're building this while dealing with that or they have had a tough break in a work situation or in a life situation, whether it was health, whether it was um, poverty, whether it was a challenge, seeing what those people did. So I've had mentors, like there's one guy from New York, strong dude. And when I learned his life story, looking day to day, never would have imagined some of the challenges, adversity, care for family, care for community that he had going on in parallel to being this strong, powerful, consistent, brave and empathetic leader who would challenge you on everything, but in a fun way. You would hear the bellowing laugh, but you would be challenged. You would do the next thing to do with your pipeline better. You would, one of his favorite sayings was, hope is not a strategy. And I 100% agree hope is not a strategy and that always stayed with me so people like that when you learn their life story and what they're doing or leaders who are driving a balance across family Mm. across health across community and still leading amazing companies and balancing that all so i think the day-to-day people I've come across, whether it's it's CEOs, whether it's salespeople, whether it's friends, family, it, it's life stories that inspire me. What they've achieved despite, what they've achieved because. Mm. What that bravery is to bring their true selves to things. There was one lady, she's an executive actually in one of our semi-state bodies. And when I think about the adversity she overcame in younger life, and how she could have gone in two directions in terms of mentality, thought process, positivity versus negativity. The amazing view she's had and the work she's done on herself personally and professionally to lead some of the the toughest Mm. trade unionized people in our space, Mm. as well as build that parallel health and balanced life it's people like that that actually overcome adversity and build something amazing in business and in life that i admire people who can be authentic people who can bring their true selves yeah yeah you mentioned the fact you were youngest of six uh, yeah. and that's that's a by Irish standards that's a large family it is in, in a very working class area yeah and you said you were the first to go to college And what you often see is in traditional, particularly large families and working class areas, there isn't a a culture of, there isn't a college culture. There's an expectation that this is what you will do. It's, and I'm wondering what sort of an adjustment that was for you. How did people react to it? And and how was it for you? 
Yeah. It's funny, actually. You're right. You're absolutely right in what you describe. That culture, that expectation wasn't there. But in our house, the expectation for me to be that person was always there. Whether it was my dad, who again, painter and decorator. Um, he, I remember when I was studying, he used to, he listened to a lot of radio. He read a lot of books and he'd go to bed at night. So my parents would have gone to bed maybe 10, 11 at night. It would have been very consistent and I'd stay up studying. It was like the next book, the next thing. I was a bookworm, always a bookworm, always a, that constant learner. I need to finish the end of the book and get to the next one. I need to figure out, well, what does somebody else think about this? So I'd stay up studying maybe a little bit later and I'm a night owl. And my dad would religiously get up, usually, I don't know, to, to make a cup of tea or something and go back to bed. Mm. So when he got up, when I was studying in later years, it was always, so another step closer to college. So what are you studying now? There was a curiosity in mm. him and a constant kind of, almost a given that mm. I was going to college. And he, we didn't talk about it, but it was almost a given. And then mum, even in younger years, when I'd come home, there was a gap between me and the the sisters and brothers. So my five sisters and brothers, there's a 10 year gap between me and the other siblings. So I almost had two sets of eyes on me. I had the older sisters and brother and I had the parents. So the older sisters and brothers they do their thing. They were teenagers as I was growing up and then early 20s and started to leave home and all the things. But my mum, religiously, when I came home from school, not only would I do my homework, but she would do the exercises with me. She would test me on different things. I remember learning to spell words that I didn't even understand age three and age four because she was testing me while she was washing up or cooking and chopping things for the dinner. So it was almost my experience within that family, within that working class suburb, again, I had balance. I had to go out and play with your friends and go down the country, but in the house, it was like, no, education is important. Yeah. And education can be that thing that you want it to be. So yeah, it was when I went to college then, I was lucky. I went to Dublin City University. I loved it. The first week was a culture shock, but loved it from the get go. You could have walked to college. Not at all. North side, south side. I could, yeah. Two buses. But Dublin City University. Dublin is in, no, north side. It's in Glasnevin. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, north side. Yeah, it would have been a long walk. Would have, yes, sorry, yes. <laughs> it would have been a long walk. Yes. I should have walked. Yeah. <laughs> it been... as it was at the time, would it? Was it? It was. It had, it had changed yeah. from, from that to DCU yeah. just before I joined. And it was much smaller than it is now. It's an absolute yeah. beast now. Yeah. But it was... To me, it was, wow, the learning, the opportunities, the people. Again, the people's experience, the people I met from the country. I, I got an energy out of mm. meeting people and learning new things. So to me, it was great. And actually, one of my best friends to this day, I, I introduced him to his wife. I was bridesmaid at their wedding. He married a, an Italian lady and he too came from the working class background and I remember us both heading off to Spain together on an adventure with the parents going oh my god our babies are going to a strange land and both of us ended up in a global organization traveling the world he works at SAP um so 
to me the college experience was really positive there was no sense of you shouldn't be there there was no sense of this isn't anything other than the most natural progression in the world and I think that came from the the book were me like my dad one of my earliest memories and both of my parents have passed away but one of my earliest memories of my dad is we used to walk to the local library together mm. he he was a bookworm I was a bookworm he'd drop me off in the kids section he'd go into the fiction section he'd bring home his his crime dramas and I'd bring home as many Eden and Blyton or whatever I was reading at the time and just loved it Loved it. So I think it was a natural thing for me to want to gravitate towards learning. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, I'm always interested in these things that, you know, perhaps if you hadn't been born, hadn't been that big gap, things might have been different because your parents would have been busier, you know, yeah. had siblings much closer in age, distracting yeah. you. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I agree. I think about that. And, and I think about the the sisters where the expectation was automatically that they would go they would leave school and go to work and there wasn't an expectation not because they couldn't or couldn't have had the exact same experience or better educationally than me but it was just a time I think you're right it's a factor of time and where you come in a family and and how much more time my parents would have had my sisters joked it's probably the same in most large families but my sisters joked saying you get away with everything because you're the baby and it's like no i get away with everything because they no longer worry they've had five of you trying it before me (laughs) yeah you know have you ever read the book birth order no i haven't i i have it here somewhere i probably can't put my hand to it now but it's a fascinating book, and just listening to your story reminds me so much about it. That, in, in short, yeah, um, that if you look at, uh, for example, out of twenty-three Apollo missions, twenty-two of them, the uh, astronauts were firstborns, and the other one was an only child. Interesting. And that if you look at, say, now it's American book, so it studies, yeah, yeah. you know, it's uh, U.S. presidents, majority of them eldest children and that eldest children are often given responsibilities look after your younger siblings while their parents catch up or whatever and um and there's you know it describes middle children often being the lost ones that they tend to get ignored but the youngest child is because the parents the parents are always paranoid on the first one i remember with our eldest child this is no word of a lie came home with me from the hospital giving him his first bath, we had a manual, just my wife and I, open beside the bath. Step one, test the temperature of the water with oh, your elbow. With I'm, your not elbow. I'm not kidding you, right? So you, you have that, and then the next one is, there's the bath, hop in, wash yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so there is that with the youngest child, that they, they're often as much reared by their siblings as they are by their parents. And, and as you said, they're given freedoms not because they're the youngest child, but because the parents realize, you know, that'll be fine. It's okay. Yeah. Or or they're just tired. <laughs> that could be another one. But the other thing that's interesting is what, what the book tells you is that if there's a gap of more than four, five years, I think it is, between the second youngest and the youngest, you inherit all the characteristics of the eldest child. Wow. All over again. So you, you have the youngest child things as in you're doted upon, you're the yeah. center of attention, you're left to your own devices, yeah. largely. Yeah. But you also have the, the leadership yeah. uh, characteristics of the eldest child as well. 
on a a 10-year cap is like there's there's no question about it so there might be something in that in terms of balance as well in terms of where yeah. two sides of your personality come from and i think so i think when i think about it i'm always curious even though i haven't read that specific mm. book i am curious and i've read others about birth order and i'm always very curious about whether somebody's the eldest the middle child the youngest child because you're right there it, it does influence personality and traits yeah and it's funny it's funny some of the eldest child leaders i've worked with and younger ones you're right when that gap is there it's almost like yeah. they have the fun but they have the responsibility versus just yeah. the responsibility or just the fun yeah after i read the book it used to be one of my favorite party tricks to do when i'd meet somebody and i'd see them behave in a particular way i'd say you first born by any chance <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I borrowed a cable from And then super and insulted if you tell them the traits. It's like, that's not me. <laughs> no, it's, 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 and it's usually something like positive. I remember sitting beside yeah. a guy on a plane once, and I saw yeah. the way he worked, very methodical, very detailed, very ordered, very structured. He's flying from Manchester to Dublin, and we touched down, and I'm kind of going, I have to ask him, I have to ask him. You're bugging me. I said, by the way, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? You were first born. <laughs> Stranger on the plane, I had spoken to him the whole journey. And he said, I am, how did you know? Yeah, there's a sense of, there is, it's funny, I mean, there's always exceptions, but you can almost tell the sense of responsibility, leadership, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there certainly is. So talk to me then about, so where we were was you, you travelled a lot, and obviously you had fun, you learned a lot, huge experience about people, about the world, helped satisfy your innate insatiable curiosity. And talk to me then about the leadership journey, what that was like from going from IC to leader and what you learned about yourselves there. Yeah, I learned that I'm either brave or stupid in the early days. Um, so one of the very first, well, actually I'll talk a little bit about maybe the, the pre-leadership journey. I joined a company in our space um, that was an American company, stayed there for five years and worked with a great team. It was a team of, of Irish and international people here in Dublin. Mm -hmm. And they were setting up in Europe for the first time for this American company. There was a great sense of camaraderie. I was in operations at the time and we had won an amazing contract. It was with Gartner at the time a huge quantity of e-learning content to be done in a very short space of time. Impossible, some would say, which is why a smaller company won that amazing contract. We stayed overnight. The, the leaders and execs who lived close by went and cooked food and brought it in. Um, one of the leaders, who's a good friend to this day, she, she used to bring the engineers to her house going, it was pre-labor laws where they were quite strict. So working... 23 hours to get this done was not unheard of <laughs> and and formed a sense of camaraderie and what is possible in a way that you wouldn't expect that of anybody but those it, it's funny that whole team is still very connected to this day many companies later many experiences later and remember that time fondly because of the leadership shown to the team the execs, even though they couldn't do anything practical, no offense if they're listening, 
they couldn't do the testing, they couldn't do the engineering, they couldn't do that. But what they showed in leadership at that time, and I was still part of the operations team as an individual contributor, what they showed is how to build people up, how to be a part of people, how to show that you are a part of the team and you're not waving goodbye as people work 20 hours to get something done that benefits the company, that you are in it with them. What can I do even if it's not the practical task? How can I support you? How can I make you feel supported? So shortly after that, in that same company, I was asked, I expressed an interest to what can I do to help? So that's probably another good and bad part of my personality. I'm, I get energized to help solve problems, sometimes too many, but I get energized to figure things out in my family, in work, in life. And I asked the question early on going, what can I do next? We've done this amazing thing. How can I help what's coming up next? And I wasn't a manager at the time. And there was a challenge. Um, things were beginning to offshore for the first time and offshore was Ireland. So things being produced in America were being offshore to Ireland as opposed to now China or other places. And I was asked, hey, do you wanna to go to the States and be our offshore services manager? And of course I said, yes. And then I went, sorry, what is that? <laughs> what exactly am I doing? Sure, that sounds great. Um, and that was the first experience in being set up to solve a problem on behalf of a company in a leadership role where I had to go and influence people. Mm. So the, the challenge at the time was you need to go to the States. You need to bring back the revenue that they are very, very attached to. They are our colleagues. They are going to hold on to it tightly. You need to convince the customers that it is the right thing to do. You need to convince the sales team that it's going to be produced just as well, if not better because this will help our company from a margin perspective, from a profitability perspective, and they don't know you. You're this strange Irish person who's getting on a plane and going over to take all their revenue away. Go. <laughs> okay, sure. So that plane journey, first time across the Atlantic, landed, first time driving a car. I had just got my license, this side of the Atlantic, handed a car that side of the Atlantic. That was a fun experience. I crashed with the CEO in the car he had the best sense of humor in the world ever as the wheel rolled down the 101 in san francisco he rocked around laughing because nobody was hurt it was fine and he went oh my god they warned us that you didn't want to drive but you have to drive here that was very funny we should give you some lessons <laughs> even though i have my license <laughs> so i think the leadership thing there was about again understanding people these salespeople. what are they going to think mm. what are they afraid of so so I think one of the things I, I loved doing as part of that is hearing and understanding, this is the remit, this is what I've been tasked to do and why, but how do we do it in such a way that you're happy and the customers are happy and the team back in Dublin are happy. So that was my earliest foray into influencing people, bringing together cross-cultural groups and achieving something on behalf of an organization. That moved the needle on the organization and I loved it. I loved it because I was figuring it out as I went, but with the goal in mind and the people being happy about the goal. And that became a normal offshore services thing. Then I moved in to take over offshore services and vendor management. So that was interesting. Learned a lot from the people around me, learned a lot about conflict as well. 
let's just say some of the sales directors at the time had very strong opinions about what should and shouldn't happen. Mm. Listening to very strong opinions was interesting as a young female leader in a very male-centric organization. Interesting, learned a lot. Hugely valuable things in terms of how to listen to people, how to not take the emotions that some are expressing as the end of what you're trying to achieve, but rather as a, okay, so this is a strong feeling here. What is it? What what are people afraid of? What are people excited about? What's driving this emotion and how do you get to the far side? And they feel good about it as opposed to you feel good about it. You mentioned that it was a male-dominated uh, industry. Was being female an advantage in any respect? I didn't see it as being an advantage at the time, but I absolutely believe it was. And even to this day, I think the energy changes, the diversity, the approach of different people, male or female, if it's all male or all female, I think there's different energy, different approaches. I think if you've got that balanced approach, there's definitely different ways of thinking, different views, not just male or female, but in general, bringing diverse people together. But yeah, I think walking into a room, and it's funny, I actually did some executive coaching where I got coaching early in my career. I was interested in the whole coaching space, performance, how you're viewed, all of that. And one of the things that a coach said to me early on is oftentimes female leaders will enter a male dominated space and lean towards their male energy. Mm. When they actually embrace their female energy, the energy in the room changes. Mm. And that was a very big learning where you suddenly went, okay, mm. be your authentic self as opposed to trying to manage as others would manage. So yeah, I, I think it was an advantage. I still think it's an advantage. The the deference, the respect that a lot of the the men I've worked with has been interesting because they have wives, they have daughters, they have they're they're building leaders themselves and they want to make sure that they're behaving in a way that they would like others to behave towards the people in their lives. So I think it's evolved a lot since the early testosterone fuel days of not thinking. I'm kind of torn a little bit with that statement in the context of, at one level, it could appear sexist. Why they would behave differently towards you, as in, I'll show you more respect because you're female. I don't think that's, it that, that's, yeah. That feels kind of strange, but it's I understand it. Yeah, I don't think it was that. I think what I experienced was, and it's funny, there was one other female leader at the time, an Italian lady, and we were the two, the only two women leaders in a very large male-driven leadership organization, very engineering heavy, etc. And it wasn't that. I don't think, uh, speaking for myself, I know I never felt a disrespect. But what I did feel was there was an energy, there was a a lot of talk about sports, a lot of talk about particular things that were outside of my reference field. So it was never disrespectful. It was more an energy. 
Mm. It was more uh, what people were drawn to in the early days because that's what the group was. Like, let's talk about the match. Let's talk about mm. the 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 world that was that that was being inhabited. So no, I never ever I never ever saw how leaders did things as different based on their gender in terms of male female, but I did see the need to help women in tech and women in localization. And one of the things I did early in my career is there was an organization in, in the States, women in localization, amazing group of people from NetApp, from Apple, from these organizations who were in the heart of Silicon Valley in, in engineering, heavily male leadership field. And they saw the need to build and promote women in tech there. And I helped found the first international chapter of that in Dublin back in 2013. And that was less about men versus women and more about let's start talking about how to build that leadership career when you're a woman in tech. So, yeah, it was interesting. And what are the, if you don't mind, just to stay with us for a second, you said how to help women build that career and leadership and take. How is that different? You're just saying how should one build a career in leadership and take? I think it's not different in terms of what you need to do, but I think it's different from what we've seen in terms of the belief and the support systems to enable you to make the right connections. So it's changed a lot in the last probably 10 years but earlier than that, if you've got a female-centric or a male-centric, it doesn't matter which it is, set of leaders who are making decisions in particular places that one group is inhabiting and the other isn't, or in places or ways that one group is heavily inhabiting and the other isn't, not by design, but just by the fact that that's what's happening. Mm. I think in order to break down some of the barriers to connect teams so that the teams are looking at what they have as diversity, what they have as options in terms of here are all the options in the room. I don't care if you're a man or a woman mm. and I don't care if I'm a man or a woman, but what are the options to bring those people together in the right places, doing the right networking, having the right types of conversations, understanding cultural norms and cultural communications from who they're dealing with, not from a, a gender perspective, but from a, again, background, where people grew up, how they did it, and, and trying to promote sponsors and mentors on both sides in terms of women and men supporting each other and driving that forward yeah. in a way that wasn't necessarily the norm with a very heavy leadership in tech, being male-centric and engineering-centric. So helping to do that and helping build awareness. We did a session actually in our industry where the CEO was a, a guy here in Dublin, an Irish guy. He was amazing. He still is. He's in the industry. And we invited him to a women in localization session with all of the women from his company, as well as women from the industry, talking about their experiences in leadership inside that org and in leadership. He was the most amazing guy. He stood up to talk, he networked afterwards, and it was like, some of these things would not even enter my head. Policies, for example, where some of the leaders stood up and told their stories, and, and men and women were married, but primarily, heavily at the time. 
the women who were driving leadership careers were equally caring for an ailing parent mm. or caring for a child or had an unbalanced mm. set of priorities on their shoulders in a way that wasn't the experience for most that had been promoted and the realization going i never even thought that you're actually doing two jobs mm. i never thought that our policies for maternity leave do not take into account policies for that stage of middle life where you might be caring for others while still building a career so there were so many things that just weren't even talked about weren't even part of the awareness psyche less about men and women but more about that's interesting yeah I, and, and again likewise i'm aware of it but hadn't it framed that way in that in, in some respects men are free to pursue a, a very singular career track if that's what they want to do yeah women don't always have that option or at least there's a there's a pressure on them they, they have the option but there's yeah. a pressure which you can't ignore internal needs either yeah. And not everybody makes the same choice, and I'm I'm all in favor of of the choice. Yes. But for for me, getting part of that was more about awareness and unblocking. Yes. So there are many women leaders who go, I don't have a family, I have the same singular career, but I have X that mm. I need to take care of. But equally, there are men who do the same thing. So for me, it was more about the awareness and the inclusivity and the diversity. And mm. our company is amazing, actually. The company I work for now, we have a lot of amazing women leaders. Mm. And we have a CEO who ha who is raising two daughters, who is very conscious of not just driving the best mm. company, but making sure it's a diverse company as well. That makes sense. And, and what I'm noticing, and I just couldn't have imagined this 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, and social media is a part to play in this, but also has, I think, the the dialogue of change that was started by the women's movement, and it was a dialogue of change, has also seeped over, from my kind of a, somewhat of a distant yeah. observation. For example, I'm seeing on LinkedIn men sharing things like, 10 years sober today, or right. talking about their battle with depressions. There is not a snowball's chance of hell men would have talked about those things 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think the two are somewhat symbolic. They're, they're, they're not disconnected in, in any way, shape, or form, even though they yeah. may appear to be quite different. It's, I think it's people standing up and saying, hang on a second, we need to consider this. You know, we're here. Yeah. And then you'll see other parts of society Actually, maybe that standing up thing works and saying we're here too. And I, I, it's, I think it's all for the good. I think it's positive to have a recognition that humans come with amazing experiences. Mm. Their professional ability to do something is phenomenal, but it's also powered by what's shaped them. And mm. whether what's shaped them is challenge, whether what's shaped them is a passion to do something that somebody else in their world has never done before, whether it's overcoming whatever it is, no matter what your gender. I think understanding people and humans in terms of what they can bring and why they want to bring it, mm. knowing the why is a big part of what will make somebody successful as well. Sure. Tell me about what's exciting you these days. So many things. On the personal front, I've gotten back into hiking and health through the pandemic. I spent a lot of time 
So I was, I was very sporty in my 20s. I would have gone to the gym six days a week. I played tennis, table tennis, badminton. I hiked. And then there was maybe an eight-year period where I lived on an aeroplane and went, ooh, I haven't done that in a while. Why are my bones aching and creaking and I'm only in my late 30s, early 40s? What's happening to me? So in recent years, pandemic grounding of aeroplanes and all the things, I'm back hiking. I'm back doing treadmill stuff. I'm addicted to Strava challenges in terms of challenge. So Strava is this app, sports app, where you can actually follow other athletes. Our internal marketing team did an amazing thing in the middle of the pandemic to connect. We have 25 offices across 40 plus countries and overnight we went remote. Mm. And our corporate marketing team went, hey guys, why don't we walk around our, our offices around the world virtually on this app? Mm. And this is Strava and we've created an Accolade club and and let's all follow each other. And even if it's just a five minute walk at lunchtime or a fresh air in the morning or evening and let's take pictures and figure out what our Finnish office looks like versus what our Colorado office versus our um, Japan office, all the things. And it was amazing. It brought people together. It got people connected, bearing in mind it happened at the same time as us being acquired in the middle of a pandemic. So in late late last year we were acquired by the accolade group and that was super exciting but suddenly we'd never met Mm -hmm. colleagues in different offices so from a personal perspective the the fitness and the health and the regaining that competitive sense of what can i do 30 hours of movement 50 hours of movement four weeks of yoga all the things that's exciting me from a personal perspective i've i've restarted to cook unusual things that I'd gotten out of the habit of. So so that's definitely exciting me in terms of the back to basics. Professionally, it is such an exciting time to go through three acquisitions in the space of four to five years in a company that is French headquartered, has a different cultural outlook, has a phenomenal global place in our space is the number one in our industry in Europe and in the top five to eight worldwide and is has acquired companies, has gone through reorgs, has provided opportunities for growth. Personally, having taken over teams as part mm-hmm. of that acquisition, getting to know new people and building that accelerated growth. Um, Education continues to excite me. I did a an INSEAD executive course last last year, twenty twenty one. Yeah, and that again opened up my world to sales leaders and marketing leaders and growth leaders in different industries that give you an energy for powering the next phase of what you can do in your own space, building out enterprise building out a rebrand that will take a new market like North America by storm, having something that's new and different for your customers. So, so I've, uh, the curiosity extends to why do enterprise customers behave in a, a particular way in a certain industry and others in the SaaS space are different and others in manufacturing are different. So that curiosity, the ability to marry what you learn mm-hmm and what's happening in market with what your company can apply. That's hugely exciting. Building the team. So we've five new um, 
team members coming on board across our sales and account management organization and seeing and helping be part of others career growth and building them up as leaders and seeing what their strengths are and seeing how they can accelerate from being a a junior reasonably inexperienced salesperson to getting their bigger wins to getting that momentum and excitement and then suddenly being the independent people who mentor others hugely exciting and then engaging with our marketing teams I've probably spent more time with marketing and marketing attribution in the last two years than I have in the last 10 and that's fun Sounds like it does sound fun. Like it's fun. Um, I wanted to ask you about you, you, it's a French company. You said you've been acquired by. Yes. You worked prior, prior to that with American companies. I'm curious what you see as the the differences culturally working with a French company versus say America. What? How would you know when you walked into a room that it was different? We're usually speaking French. Unless you're from the deep south of Louisiana or somewhere, maybe. But... <laughs> so that would, no, I have to say, and, and I'm a French fan. I, I studied, I studied languages at university. I studied French and Spanish and translation, but there's definite different, it, it's a specific culture. It's, it's a little bit more hierarchical. Mm in terms of an organization in a way that American companies are a little bit flatter. Mm. Uh, the American companies I've worked for, I've seen communication styles where speaking at all levels is very normal. Mm. So having an opinion and expressing that opinion at all levels is very accepted in an American company understanding the hierarchical norms is a little a little different not dramatically and I I suppose our company while it has French leadership is a global company operating in a globalization space so probably not typical our CEO has a global view our our board of directors Mm -hmm. has a global view our leaders are distributed so while our executive team sits in paris our global leadership is distributed across each region so the american team has rolled up into an american pnl and leadership and our nordic team as well as well as global functional so it might not be the best representation because we're quite global and outlook we're quite broad but yeah i mean it's the fun parts of working for a new culture and a new company is what you learn about the people and what you learn about how they do business. One of my favorite books is The Culture Map by Erin Meyer. Really phenomenal. We actually invited her to kick off our book club. So we had a we have a book club. We had a book club where we pick different books and we bring together folks who want to be part of that at all levels of the org and talk about it. So yeah. what does it mean? How does it apply to your life? How does it apply to business? We did things like Atomic Habits. We did Give and Take with Adam Grant. We did Dare to Lead with Brené Brown. So I think the French organization is just different. Mm. Just different, lovely different, amazing different. Adore the French approach to things different. But yeah, very different to any other culture. No more than if it were a German one or an American one. But yeah, fun. You said you had a book club. And I'm just conscious of time. Could you share with me... A book, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be part of your book club, but a business books, leadership book that has that made an impact on you and why? There's a few. Um, so I think 
Dare to Lead is definitely a good one. Brene Brown and the bringing your authentic self to every situation and enabling others to have a safe space to be brave and try things. I think that's definitely one that, that resonated. I like her style of writing. Yeah. I Tell like the authentic self thing, if you wouldn't mind, because that's come up again and again. And I'm always kind of curious about it. At one level, I get it. Another level, I'm going, well, if you're an asshole, people don't want you to be your, your authentic self. <laughs> they, want, they want that little bit <laughs> dialed down, you know? I think I think we could probably have another session on podcasts on not hiring assholes. So you don't yeah, have cool. a problem. So, yeah. but no, I think the authenticity for me, I think when you're you're always brave enough to be authentic in any area of your life. Like I've I've had friends say to me, Grania, why don't you mind? Like you're not afraid to say something. It was like, no, I'm not. I I just never was. It's not how I grew up. It was like I don't care if it's a policeman, a CEO a janitor it doesn't matter to me they're people so having an opinion and expressing an opinion respectfully to somebody else is never something i thought about and i thought everybody was like that or saying what i did and didn't want to do without much thought other than be respectful is normal to me but i realized as I grew, that that's not normal for everybody. Not everybody is brave enough to be themselves and recognising that in a room. Not everybody is brave enough to speak their opinions in a room full of leaders. Mm. And some people need more help and more guidance and more safety to show them that no matter what they do and what they say respectfully as they're growing and trying to contribute is good. So I think for me, the authenticity is giving people a safe space to be themselves and not feel like they have to say X or they have yeah. to say Y. If that's getting sense. harder though in, in an environment where sometimes expressing your own heartfelt opinion can get you in deep water, get you cancelled. I mean, if you're a public figure and you say something about a movement that's not their rigor, then you can you can get piled upon very easily. I think the there's a difference between being your authentic self and being an authentic, disrespectful, awful person. There's a difference. So if you pile in on a movement and your your opinion is is disrespectful, keep it to yourself. Don't I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean it's disrespectful. Say, for example, I mean, something yeah. that's... Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard even to bring a topic up. You could talk about something that's very contentious, for example. Let's say take the J.K. Rowling uh, thing, right? Yes, she sure. expressed her authentic viewpoint. Sure, but why? Uh, She's and, a leader. And there was a lot of pile on as a result. Yeah. So that, that's what I mean. I don't think she was being disrespectful in how no. she expressed herself. People didn't like what she said, but... Um, it, that's, that's, the, that's the one I'm getting at. No, no, I get what you mean. I definitely get what you mean. To me, it's not a, like to me, the the more of a leader, the more you grow either in power, in influence, in people listening to you in the position you're in. It's not lack of authenticity, it's ability to know mm. that people are listening to you, people pay attention to what you think and what you say. And if what you think and what you say is not to do with what you're doing in your authentic work life. Mm. 
think about why it is you're bringing it to the world. You can have your authentic opinions, but is it going to help a situation or harm a situation? For me, authenticity, I don't mean opinions like that. For me, authenticity is about the psychological safety that you build for teams, that you help them be the best version of themselves, and they're not afraid to do something new or be themselves or bring their thoughts and opinions to things to do with work, mm. not to do with what they think about a movement sure. or what they think about X, Y, and Z. That's their own personal yeah. opinions. Do you, do you see what I mean? I, I guess if I've understood it, what you're saying is don't be somebody who says one thing and does another. Yeah. So either keep your opinions to yourself if they're not relevant to what we're doing but be your authentic self in terms of passion or energy or belief or, hey, I think there's another way to do this because X, Y, and Z. Or don't be afraid that because your opinion is different that it's not valuable. Once we reach a consensus, go forward. Don't argue about it. Let, let's reach the consensus, but let's have the safety for everybody to contribute their view to that, what yes. the best way to do it is. Final question, quick question. Uh, when your time on this planet is done and they write a book about your life story, what would you like the title of it to be? She made things fun. She taught me things that others weren't brave enough to teach me. She challenged me to make me better. Oh, well, you described it. Just the title, not the book itself. Oh, the title. Okay. She made <laughs> that's, that's, we're run out of <laughs> she, made, she made things fun love while it. challenging me. Love it, love it, love it. Fun, fun and challenging. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Ronnie McHawk, absolute, absolute delight to talk to you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a lot too. And uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for being my guest. Paul, it was an absolute pleasure. Have a wonderful 2022.